you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to continue our walk through the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at the first 27 verses in this chapter today. I know that sounds like a lot, but we're going to move through it pretty quick, I hope, uh, unless I get sidetracked by, you know, some weird statement that came, comes to my head. It happens, you know, it's just the way it works sometimes. Um, in this section of Scripture, um, I spent a lot of time with this this week, trying to figure out the best way to bring this out, and um, we're going to move things around a little bit um, as far as the, uh, uh, the order within this particular section, but that's okay. Um, what we're talking about is Jesus entering Jerusalem. In your Bible, it probably says the triumphal entry. For the last, for the last Passover, it's not the last time he entered it because he went back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany, so he was in and out all week long. But this is the last time we have him recorded entering Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And what happened there? And then he clears the temple out, which is one of my favorite things, the idea of, you know, Jesus chasing people out of a building with a whip somehow is just a little comical to me. And then a very weird, very misunderstood encounter with a tree. That It's one of those passages people go, I don't even know why this is in here. This is weird. I don't know what it's for. And we're going to take a look at all of this stuff, but we're going to start right off in uh, verse 1, chapter 21. So let's pray and then jump in. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open this word to us this morning, Lord, reveal your truth to us, show us where it applies to our life, and show us where we need to change. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So starting off in verse 1, it says, Now they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage from the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey. A donkey tied up and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, prophet, uh, by the prophet, saying, uh, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, uh, coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and poured the, uh, put their cloaks on, uh, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So let's just pull this apart a little bit, and maybe take it from a slightly different angle than what you may have heard over the years. This is one of those messages that usually ends up coming up around Easter. This is a typical Palm Sunday message because this is what Palm Sunday is based off of. Um, the Jesus walking in, people putting the palm, palm branches down. Let's take it maybe a slightly different direction and deal with some of the other issues surrounding it because there's some amazing prophetic pieces to this that I think oftentimes get missed. But first, let's deal with one of the practical problems that come with this passage. There is a chronological issue with this passage that gets pointed out to me. I deal with, it with atheists every now and then online, and they love to point stuff like this out, so I figured why not take a moment and actually deal with this, because there is a chronological issue within this passage compared to the other, four, the other three Gospels. In all of the Gospels, when you, they all record this event, but they don't record it the same. It's different in most of the Gospels. And atheists love to point this out, so let's deal with it so we have a way to answer their questions. 
And you think about this, in Mark 11, it says that Jesus came into Jerusalem, looked around, went back to Bethany, then the next day came, cursed the fig tree, then went to the temple. That's not what this one says. Luke and John don't even record the fig tree at all. And in in John, the clearing of the temple happens in chapter 2. It's completely in different areas. So how do we do this? Now, what ends up happening is people love to point out, see, this is why you can't trust the Bible. All of these details are out of order. People are just making this stuff up. They can't even get it right. How can we trust this thing? Well, here's a really, really easy way of of helping people understand why the chronology in this doesn't make a difference when it comes to the truth that it's presented. Okay, so any of you who are married here, husbands and wives, if you're married, pop your hand up. Okay, leave your hand up if, if you can clearly recall the first three and a half years of your life in order, every conversation, every place you went, everything you did, and your wedding in proper order. And if you think you have it in a proper order, ask your wife, you don't. Some of you right now are going, I don't even know where it was held. I showed up, some guy came to my house, they took me there, gave me to this lady, and I woke up a week later, married. You know, there's not a lot of people going, that's not how it happened at all. There's a lot of guys going, sounds familiar. You see, now let me ask you a question. Because you cannot recall all those details, does that mean they didn't happen? Of course not. We recall details and we remember things that impacted us the most. You ask a husband and wife about the details of their wedding and you're going to find out what meant something significant to the wife and what meant something significant to the husband. They're different they're not the same. They're going to get the orders wrong because the details of that, of, of the chronology of it is not important. What is important is that it was recalled. And one of the things we have to remember is that the Holy Spirit, did the Holy Spirit write the Gospels through the authors? The answer is yes. You're allowed to speak, by the way. You're allowed to speak. When I ask you a question, you're totally allowed to speak. It's fine. Unless you're in witness protection program, then you shouldn't be sitting anywhere near here. So, (laughs) yeah, of course he did. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think it might even have been last week, did the Holy Spirit take over their bodies and they were like robots and like Matthew chapter one, verse one. And no, that's not what happened. The Holy Spirit wrote the gospels and they were inspired through the Holy Spirit, which means the personalities and the memories of the gospel writers are in there somewhere. When you're reading the Gospels, you're not just reading about Jesus. You're also learning something about Matthew. You're learning something about Mark. You're learning something about Luke and something about John. You're learning their personalities. You're learning the things that really mattered to them. You're learning about how detailed they are or how much they wanted to mention this but left out details because they really wanted to get to this. You're learning the things that they found important. So they're in there somewhere. So the chronology is not an issue. 
And if you ever talk to a cop or anyone who does any kind of investigating, uh, investigating, if you uh, or a teacher, you sit a couple of people down and you ask them what happened, and you get the exact same story from all of them. You know it's a lie. Parents, you know this too, and you sit down your kids. Who broke it? And they all have the same story. The dog. Because we know that they love the dog more than us. No, you know it's a lie. Because it's rehearsed. And in a moment of panic, you tend to just fall back on whatever is coming to your mind. And if you've rehearsed something, you know it's a lie. The fact that the Gospels are different is one of the reasons why they're so trustworthy. You can tell it's not made up. It's nowhere near close enough to be made up. They're unique. The four Gospels are unique because the authors were unique. The writers were unique. They had unique experiences. They had unique memories. So we can still trust what's going on here. It doesn't have to be in the right order. So, moving right along. Now that we've dealt with that, let's get back to the text, the coming of the king. Your Bibles call this the triumphal entry because as people in this part of the uh, in, in this part of time, we can look backwards and see what happened. We get the benefit of reading through Scripture and seeing these prophecies and seeing how they line up, seeing how they come true, when they actually happen, and we can look back and go, wow, that's amazing. I wonder why them idiots didn't see that coming. If you ever paid attention to the morning after an election and you want to know what they missed, we do the same thing. They were living it in real time. We get the benefit of hindsight. And so when we see these things, sometimes the titles in our Bibles lead us to believe like everyone understood this stuff. They didn't. But we know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. Feel free to read that whenever you want. And we know, that it, we know why it happened, but there's more to it. There's more to what was going on, and there's a very significant bits and pieces of Scripture that are in here and bits and pieces of prophecy and history that are in here. One of the things is when Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, he was actually stating to everyone in the city and everyone who is watching, I am the Messiah. I am your king. Anyone who knew scripture would have known that passage. Every Jew there should have seen that as a declaration of Jesus, I am the one you're waiting for. They didn't. They didn't see it. Even the disciples were just like, this is so cool. The prophecy in Zechariah clearly states, your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. It doesn't get any more clear than that. So when people say, Jesus never declared himself the king, he did actually multiple times, and here he's saying it with pictures. Even for people who can't read, this is really simple. I'm the one you're waiting for. And the interesting thing is, now, why is it important from a prophetic standpoint, why is it important that Jesus came riding on a donkey? And this is one of those things where People in the first century would have understood this. We don't understand this because this is not how we do things today. How a ruler enters the city determines what their intentions are. So there's a reason Jesus was coming in on a donkey because normally 
if a ruler was coming into the city, they would come letting everyone know who they are. Typically, this is how a ruler would show up. They would show up on an armored horse. They would show up with a sword. They would show up in their finest, uh, finest battle-ready gear, and they would let everyone know, not only am I in charge, I am powerful. I'm not just the king. I'm a ruler. I'm a warrior. You can trust me. I'm here. I'm strong. I'm big. I don't say those things, but big, strong people say those things. That's not how Jesus came into the city. He did not come into the city as a warrior king. And it's so important because I've, I've told you this multiple times throughout this series. What was it that Israel was waiting for? A warrior king. Someone who was going to smite the Romans and basically knock over the rest of the world and the Jews were going to be on top of it all. They wanted the warrior. What they got... This guy sitting on a donkey. Even just looking at those two images show you two radically different approaches. One, fear me. The other one, I'm not here to start a fight. There is nothing about Jesus riding on the donkey that makes, makes you think, wow. Look at like Patton riding into the Battle of the Bulge in a tank. Whoa, look at that is amazing. That's World War II for those of you who were born in the 2000s. It's fine, it's fine. Because I know they don't teach history anymore. Um, there's nothing about this that shows strength. There's everything about this that should make you curious. This is the prophet? This is the mighty man of God? Why, why would he come into the city like this? Because that's how God said he was going to come into the city. Now, another interesting part, a part of this is that the people who were gathered, they recognized the significance of Jesus, but what they didn't do, this is, this is, this is, so, this is so common in, uh, among, among religious circles and even among the church today, they recognized the significance of Jesus, but they didn't pay attention to what the Scripture was saying about Jesus. What they, they got stirred up. Scripture says they got stirred up. When he entered, the whole city was stirred up. Now, we get this idea, we think stirred up, we think like everyone's excited, oh, this is so great, oh, that everyone's talking about it, you know, Jesus is here, this is really great. That is not what this, is, what this means. So that Greek word, that one, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, is used for two things. Earthquakes, <laughs> it's used to describe earthquakes, and it's also used to describe an event so extreme and so intense that it, that it just brings anxiety on everyone next to him. Anyone who experiences it, no one's like, woohoo! Everyone is like, what is going on here? Which makes you think, earthquake, right? Only a moron would go through an earthquake thinking, this is fun! Now, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, let's put this into different terms, you could feel it in the ground through the city because the people outside 
were making such noise, it was shaking the ground. The people inside the city were getting worried because they didn't know what was going on. And the officials who were in the city got so worried, they went out of the gate to see who was coming because they wanted to know what was about to happen because it felt like there was an invading army working its way into the city, which meant everyone was about to die. Stirred up seems a little inadequate to the moment. It's kind of funny that we're talking about this on Super Bowl Sunday because people keep saying that whenever you're in a stadium like that and people get going, you don't just hear it. Even if you're deaf, you feel it because everything in the building is moving. This is what we're talking about. This is what was happening during that time. So in English, when we say stirred up, it just seems moderately insignificant or uh, um, uh, out of touch with what was going on. Now, you think about this. When you know that fact, it changes other things that we read about Jesus' entry into the city. In Luke 19... Verse 39 and 40, it reads this. So after Jesus enters the city, or starts coming into the city, and after the crowd is all stirred up, and after the, the, the Sanhedrin come out, they're like, dude, you, you have to stop this. So this is going to end badly. You need, to, you need to knock this off. The Sanhedrin come out and say this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Basically saying, you've got to quiet these people down. And Jesus answered, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I don't know about you. I've been a Christian for over 30 years now, and I know exactly how I've heard this every, almost every single time I hear it preached, that if the people stopped singing, the rocks would start singing. How many of you have heard that? Even the earth would start singing. There's a, there's a bit of a theological issue with that. Are rocks aware of what's going on around them? <laughs> And if they are, what do we do now, <laughs> you know? Or is it that there's a first century equivalency that we don't understand because we don't think like this today? The term, the rocks would cry out. You notice he didn't say nature would cry out. It says the rocks would cry out. In the first century, that meant there will be bloodshed. There will be bloodshed. 160 years before Jesus entered the city was the Maccabean rebellions. They overthrew. So they, uh, Israel had been conquered. They rose up against their oppressors and they conquered them. What? And that didn't last very long because the person who, who, who led the rebellion didn't last very long. But you remember, they're waiting for a Messiah to do exactly that. Now, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus fulfilling prophecy by riding into the city on a donkey to the point where everyone outside is yelling and stomping to the point where the city is physically shaking, causing anxiety. You know the Romans are aware of what's going on. The Romans know about the way the people are viewing their Messiah, their their king to come in, and the Romans are like, we're the ones that are supposed to die. Something, something bad is about to happen here. And the Pharisees are saying, you need to stop this because the Pharisees know that if the Romans feel threatened, bad things happen. And so Jesus is saying, if you make me t- tell these people to be quiet, then the stones 
will cry out and there will be violence. Go into the city, let them sing, it's fine. Because what they were shouting, Hosanna was save, in in that century it meant save us now Lord, do it now God, make it happen, make what happen? Save us from what? It It was a battle cry, folks. Tell us to rise up and protest now and we'll kill them all. See, now we're back to the way Jesus rode into the city. He didn't come on a battle horse with a shield and a sword. We're like, it's time. He came in on a donkey. He wasn't trying to start a fight. He was trying to end one. And that's so important for us to understand. He was not trying to stir us up to battle. He was trying to win a war that began 4,000 years ago. He came to bring peace. Sometimes peace requires a fight, but Jesus was going to fight that battle for us because we're not capable of fighting that battle. All right, so that's Jesus walking into the city. (coughs) The rest is quicker, I promise. It says, and Jesus, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold money and uh, bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to help him in the temple, and he healed them. Uh, by the way, I, I, I took the section of the fig tree, if you're reading in your Bible, and I pushed it to the end, so you're going to see me skip here in just a minute. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children uh, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah, have you ever, have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Basically, Jesus is going, duh. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came upon him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? I love Jesus' answer here. Jesus answered them and said, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said uh, uh, said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus went, "Hmm. you don't answer me, I don't answer you. So let's look at the first question. Why was Jesus upset? Jesus had been going to the temple every year since he was a child. This was not new. He has seen this year after year after year. What's the issue? I think the issue is he knows he's not going to have to come back and deal with the repercussions next year. So Jesus is now trying to prove a point. Jesus was upset because this was the house of God. It was a temple of sacrifice, a temple of worship, a temple of prayer. And these people, pay attention to this because this is important for us today. These people turned sacrifice into barter, worship into a concert, and prayer 
into meaningless repetition. This is what was happening in the temple that got Jesus so upset. He saw this year after year. Sacrifice became barter, worship became a concert, and prayer became nothing but repetition. All that made faith precious had been reshaped to make it easier for the user. Do you hear what I just said? All the things about the faith that were precious, that were valuable, that make you strive to get closer to God became reshaped, repackaged, so that it was the easiest on the end user. Passover was no longer about sacrifice. It was no longer about recognizing our depravity before a righteous God and the penalty of our sin. That was the point of coming to the temple. It became a process of doing the least possible and still being on the right side of judgment. See, before you had to, uh, so every year you'd come and you'd offer a sheep. If you couldn't afford a sheep, you could offer, you could offer pigeons or doves. But they had to be raised very specifically. In order for a sheep to be ready, or a baby lamb to be ready for, for sacrifice, it had to have no blemishes on it. You see a lot of times, in, uh, especially in old commentaries, you'll see someone, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll see pictures of a shepherd walking through a field and he's got a lamb draped around his neck. And you think, oh, that lamb was tired. No, that lamb was the sacrifice. That, it was intended that that lamb's life was going to pay for the sin of the family and the shepherd was not going to take a chance that that lamb was going to get a cut on itself or something was going to be wrong. So he would literally drape it across its neck and he would carry that thing until it was about a year old and then it would become the sacrifice. There is a reason for this. The idea is that as you're carrying this thing, you develop a connection and you know this thing that is sleeping on your shoulder, that is, that is getting all cuddly, that is licking your neck or whatever, and you just think, oh, this is so fair. I'm going to kill this thing because of my sin. That was the point. The idea is that the penalty of our sin before a righteous God would become known to us through having to raise this lamb, to have, have to care for this thing and love this thing and protect this thing, and then we had to kill it because of our issues before God. Now, you just, you go and you buy one. You didn't even have to present it to the priests. They did it for you. You just went into the church gift store, purchased a sacrifice, and left. Sacrifice turned into barter. Could you imagine Jesus is in the temple throughout his life listening to people barter the price of the sacrifice from the vendor. And I'm sure the vendors, knowing that people came to Jerusalem for Passover with nothing, he had them over a barrel. So I'm sure all of those sacrifices were reasonably priced, like a hot dog at the Super Bowl. I'm sure there was no price gouging involved. And here they are. Well, it's this much. Well, I'll tell you what. I didn't bring all my kids with me. So there's not as much sin with me this year. So how about, uh, how about five, five shekels less? Well, I don't know if I can do five. Let's make a deal. 
and you start haggling over the value of your forgiveness before God in the temple of God. I got an idea why Jesus was irritated. So when you hear people talking about, I can't listen to that music anymore. I used to support such and such ministry. I can't anymore. And we go, you're so judgy. You're so judgy. You're just jealous because of their ministry. Is that true? Or has that person finally got it? They finally figured it out. That worship doesn't have to be a concert. It actually shouldn't. Like, I don't know, the groove just didn't do it for me today. The, the, the groove? Really? I'd, I'd like worship better if it was like jazz. Jazz, that's a... Uh, you know, I'm with you. Jazz, I'm with you. That's good. Jazz, blues, I'm there. You read through the Psalms, it's like what, like reading through a blues concert. It's just kind of the way David was. But you know what? Here's the cool thing about worship. It's not about you. It's not about you. Here's the interesting thing about giving. It's not about you. Here's the interesting thing about growing in God. It is about you. But that's the only choice you have. You can either grow and, and get closer to God, and the closer you get to God, the more you realize that there's really not a whole lot that's about you. I wish this was done differently. Deal with it. D -d Deal with it. You know? you know, I would go to church more if the snacks were better. Really? Like, that's, that's the limit, you know? I stay after church if there's fudge, but there's no fudge I don't stay after church. Seriously? I have heard this conversation, folks. You get up after church and I look, there's no fudge, we go to lunch. Like, so, so it's a fudge factor, is, is really what it is. It's, that one was for you, Abel. <laughs> anyway, moving, moving right along. Jesus clears the temple out because the temple is fake. The people in the temple are fake. The worship in the temple is fake, and he's had enough. And then the inevitable happens, the Pharisees. Now, the Sanhedrin is a combination of the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. They all come together, and they make the Sanhedrin. So if I bounce back and forth between those two terms, and, and you, um, I read, and it says Pharisee, it's, trust me, it's the same group. So just, just so you understand that. So afterwards, they come out, and they want to know, what gives you the right to do what you just did? And Jesus answers their question with a question. Jesus is not being obstinate at this point. He's not being defensive. This was a normal practice during those days when you're having a conversation with religious leaders. They would come and ask you a question, and a normal thing to do would be to respond with a question. So Jesus was just following tradition at the time. Who gives you this authority? I'm going to answer that, but I need an answer from you. Who gave John his authority? Such a good... Now, John's already dead, but such a great question. And the reason why it was a great question is it revealed their motives. When you look at the... They, they all pull back. When we huddle, they all get back. What, what's, what's going on? Sorry, football reference. I'm not, I didn't even do that on purpose. <clears throat> nope, I'm about to make a joke, and I'm going to move right along. 
<laughs> yeah. Anyway, stop. <laughs> nope, there's too many Taylor Swift fans in here, so I'm not going to go there. Anyway, moving right along. So, <laughs> anyway, so they get together and they start thinking about it. If we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then they're gonna, he's going to wonder why we, we didn't agree with it. And if we say it wasn't, then all of those people who were chanting, let's take over and let's overthrow Rome now, are going to be really upset because they viewed John as a prophet. What drove their decision-making? Public opinion. Truth was never even in the conversation. The relationship between John and Jesus to Scripture and prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy never even entered the conversation. It was all, what will the people think about this, and will this Elevate us in their eyes or lower us in, our, in their eyes? Are we going to lose control over the populace or is, do we, we need to make a decision that isn't going to get us in trouble with the people we are governing? Truth had nothing to do with it. They weren't even concerned about the idea that there was barter for sacrifice going on in the temple they were charged with managing. It was never even a concern of theirs. They should have been thanking Jesus for finally getting these people out of the temple. That's not what they wanted. See, because the people who didn't want true sacrifice and true worship were irritated because now faith became difficult. See, faith should be easy. God would never make it difficult on me. He knows the type of person that I am. He loves me too much to make my faith difficult. And then plus you have this Jesus person, Jesus, Jesus and John, running around the countryside, healing, baptizing, performing miracles, teaching with power and authority, doing all of these things that the Messiah was supposed to do and that the messenger that was going to come before the Messiah was supposed to do. Who did these guys think they are? It never even entered into their minds that scripture was playing out right in front of them. They were more concerned with not making people mad than they were with listening to and living the truth. And that brings us to the next part. This is that section of scripture that everyone thinks is weird to get in between this, but this is the key to understanding the entire section, and that's this little fig tree. In the morning, he was returning to the city and he became hungry. And seeing the fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Yikes! And then the disciples saw it and marveled, uh, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and, and do not doubt, not, uh, you will not only do uh, what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have enough faith. I'm only going to deal with the fig tree today. We're going to deal with the, the mountain in another gospel. There's other opportunities, and it would take way too long, so I'm just going to deal with the fig tree today. I want you to think about this. It seems like a bit of an overreaction that Jesus would walk up to a tree that his dad created, and expect there to be fruit on it during a time of year where the fruit didn't grow. 
If I walked outside and went, drove down to Mexico, went to an apple orchard, went out into the field and realized there are no apples, dadgummit, and then I set fire to the entire orchard because how dare there not be apples on the apple trees? Is that a reasonable response? Nope. They're not supposed to be there, so why should they be there? This is where people get a little confused because there's pieces in Scripture that are obvious to the people who were there that we don't recognize because we weren't living in that time. And basically, when you think about this, when figs were in season, when a tree was producing fruit, it would also produce an abundance of leaves. The leaves on the fruit, they'd cover the fruit, protecting it from the sun, so the fruit wouldn't dry out, and so the fruit could grow underneath them. So when there was an abundance of leaves on a fig tree, that's a signal to everyone around, I have fruit. They look great on the outside, so there should be fruit on the inside. So Jesus is hungry, and he sees this fig tree off in the distance, and in his mind, that tree is telling me it bears fruit. And then he gets up to the fruit, uh, to the tree, and what does he find? Nothing. It looked like it bore fruit from a distance. It looked like a healthy tree, something that was going to be able to feed the hungry, something that was doing what it was supposed to do. It looked the part till you got close. And then nothing. All promise, no delivery. That's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. This was an example to his disciples. If you're going to pretend that you bear fruit and you end up with nothing, you produce nothing, you're all flash. In the end, the only thing waiting for you is a curse. Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and, uh, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. The main lesson in this whole section is so subtle, but it's so powerful. Jesus entered the city and everybody saw what they wanted to see. They only looked at the outside. The king is coming. The battle is beginning. Everything that we have thought that God was going to do is about to happen. All of our dreams are going to come true. This is fantastic. And they start freaking out. But they didn't pay attention to what was on the inside. They didn't pay attention to the fact that the warrior king that they were waiting for was never in the Bible anywhere. And that Jesus didn't come up, uh, didn't show up in Jerusalem riding on a horse with a sword and a shield. He showed up on a beast of burden, just as Scripture prophesied, to come to bring peace, to bring an end to battle, not to start a new one. They saw all they wanted to see on the outside. They paid no attention 
to the fruit that was now in bloom. Jesus goes into the temple. The priests are charged with the care of the temple, with the sanctity of worship. But the temple was all appearance and no substance. It had the appearance of something godly. It had the appearance of a place of sacrifice. It had the appearance of a place of prayer. But there was nothing of value in it until all the fake was driven out. And the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are now questioning Jesus about where he gets his authority. And in their very own questions, the answer is sitting right in front of them, but they only see their position. They don't see their responsibility. They have all of the looks of people of God, of men of God, of teachers of the word of God, but they are incapable of actually teaching the truth of the word of God because they themselves don't understand it. Prophecy was standing in front of them. They didn't see it. Heresy was in their practices. They couldn't see it. They had corrupted not only their temple, but themselves. They had corrupted the sacrifice. They had corrupted the worship. They had corrupted all of it. They couldn't see it because they were too worried about the way the people were going to react. They were not worried enough about what God had actually said. And the fig tree is the lesson. If you're going to look the part, if you're going to claim, I'm a Christian, I don't do that. I would never, I'm godly. Look at me. Not only am I a Christian, I'm a good Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I'm a good Christian. I only cuss when I'm golfing. I'm a good Christian. I show up to work at only five minutes late. No more. I'm a good Christian. I don't watch R-rated movies unless they're going to be really good. I'm a good... All leaves, no fruit. This is, this is the harsh reality of our faith. We are not escaping death. We are escaping judgment. But we all have to stand and be judged. And it's going to come down to a few simple things. I gave you a book. I showed you Everything that I could think of about how man acts and how I react. I've shown you everything that I can think of about my character, and I'm speaking for God, not for me, about God's character and nature. I've shown you what righteousness is. I've shown you what sin is. I've shown you what I will accept, and I've shown you what I will not accept. And it's all here if you would just do it. but we don't. Our society, is, it shows that. We have to look deeper than what we see on the outside. We have to look deeper than the surface. Just because your coworkers get along with you does not mean you're representing God in that workplace. 
Just because you've never been, your job has never been threatened because of your Christianity does not mean you're a shining example of faith in that system. That's not the goal, by the way. I can't wait to get fired and be a Christian. That should not be your goal. But when people bring ungodly to you, you have two choices and only two choices. To stand for godliness or to be a fake. It's not compromise. It's being a fake. Because you're more concerned about how they're going to react than you are about how God is going to react to you. In the days we're living in, the times we're living in, in the trials that we are facing as a people, we cannot afford to be a tree with no fruit. We cannot do that. Because you notice when Jesus looked afar off to the tree, the tree had a promise because of how it looked. If I come to you, then there's something there for me. And he came to it and there was nothing. The people in your life, your coworkers, your friends, your family, the people you might teach, the, the, the employees you may supervise, when they're in need, when there's something that, that's going on in their life and you are portraying yourself as something off in the distance that will bring fruit, that will be able to heal and to sustain. And they come up to you and they, they, they're, they're looking for something. Is there anything for them to find? Or are you just an empty tree? A hollow vessel, a water bottle with nothing in it. Looks great. There's no help. We have to look deeper than that. We have to do better than that. This world needs, I'm going to say this, I want to say this so carefully. The world needs real Christians, not churchgoers. The world needs real Christians, not churchgoers. Going to church is easy. The devil comes to church. I don't know if you realize that. He does. He comes and he's wondering how much, you, how serious you take it. Does this actually do anything for you? Are you different when you leave and when you showed up? He's wondering. We've got to do better. So.